welcome to episode 14 of Biohacking with Brittany. This is a podcast that specializes in making biohacking accessible and affordable and easy for everybody. So today on the episode, we have Dr. Marcus Weller. He owns a company called Halcyon that is a supplement and nootropic company. But we really dive deep into gut health and what that means for the body and how so much of the inflammation that we experience starts in our gut. So pain in your joints, brain fog, nervous system issues, leaky gut, SIBO, all of these different things really tie into your gut health and how well it's functioning on a daily basis. So he talks a lot about the difference between probiotics and prebiotics the types of foods that we should be eating for our gut. And we really just dive into some really interesting nutrition-related topics. Like we talk about ketosis, what it is and what it isn't. We talk about animal protein and how the carnivore diet has become a thing, a trend in the health and wellness world, and kind of what that's actually doing to your gut on a microscopic level. So yeah, we dive into a whole bunch of really, really interesting topics. He, you know, practices and does see clients not very often, but he does and just has a ton of experience and knowledge when it comes to inflammation that starts on a small level and expands to other places. So it was wonderful talking with him. I will link everything we talk about in the show notes below his company. And if you'd like to reach out to him, like personally, and just the other things that we talk about as well. So I hope you enjoy this episode and subscribe. And yeah, let me know what you think. Dr. Marcus Weller, thank you so much for coming on the show today. I'm so excited that you're here. You are an expert in so many things regarding biohacking, health, nutrition, all of it. So for everybody who doesn't know who you are, can you introduce yourself and kind of tell us how you got to biohacking in the first place? Absolutely. And thank you for having me. So I'm a PhD in industrial psychology, and I've been focusing on performance coaching for the last uh, 15 years. One of the things that I like to focus on is really about how lifestyle and things that are that result in better health for the body can also result in better health for the brain, which is the highest leverage tissue that's in your body to improve your life. And so biohacking, our approach at Halcyon which is our company, is really about understanding the underlying systems of the body and interfacing with those systems in a way that can enhance your health and enhance your cognitive performance. So we think about biohacking a little differently than, than maybe some people think about it in the sense that we're not about tampering with the systems, we're about enhancing a person's ability to achieve homeostasis or a healthy interaction of the underlying systems in the body to result in the best possible performance. So when you're doing your one-on-one coaching with people and you're looking at these body systems, which body system or a couple of them do you see most often is not optimized or is in balance? One of the things that we often see is inhibited cell metabolism. And so by looking at the underlying processes to optimize the metabolic infrastructure of the body, you also have a very, very intricate metabolic infrastructure of the brain. And so by looking at things like fasting and appropriate supplementation, 
you can enhance those systems to make them interface with, with each other more appropriately. And another one that's, that's extremely important and not unrelated is the gut microbiome. And so we take an approach that people should really focus on prebiotics as opposed to probiotics. And so we can talk a little bit more about that. But those are two systems that I think most people can do some very simple techniques that are easily implemented in their life and see a lot of result and a lot of benefit very quickly. Yeah. So let's dive into prebiotics versus probiotics. So how would you define that for those that don't know? And how can you find that in your diet currently? Yes. Probiotics, a lot of people are seeing supplements like these, and that's ingesting a bacteria that hopefully makes it to your gut and seeds the gut microbiome with these healthier bacteria to get a better balance. Now, that's contrasted with prebiotics, which are really the things that the healthy gut bacteria like to eat or like to feed on. And those things definitely make it to the gut. Whereas there's mixed evidence in the research that probiotics actually make it to the gut to have the intended impact. So examples of prebiotics are resistant starches that can be found in potatoes, can be found in different plant material, and can be found in legumes. And so when you consume these prebiotics, these elements of the plants make it down into the gut where the healthy gut bacteria feed on these and create enzymes and create a hostile environment for the bad bacteria to survive. And so when you get prebiotics in the diet through eating lots of different plant material, especially uh, plants that have resistant starches, you create an environment that becomes very difficult for bad bacteria to proliferate and it causes the good bacteria in the gut to proliferate. So it's very simple. Anyone can do it, which is to integrate more resistant starches in the diet. That's going to bring the gut microbiome into a healthy balance. So there isn't a lot of evidence right now that consuming exogenous bacteria like probiotics, that they'll actually make it to the gut and have the impact that we're looking for. But there's a lot of evidence, an enormous amount of evidence in the research literature that shows that prebiotics do achieve this intended effect. Yeah, I've read this like similar things and try to do the same thing. So I, I recently read about green bananas being one of the options for resistant starches. Can you give any other examples other than potatoes to go with it? Yeah, so you can eat foods, legumes like lentils and white beans and black beans because they're loaded with antioxidants. I like to recommend black beans, but any type of legumes have a lot of resistant starches. And then most cruciferous vegetables are also going to have resistant starches that make it to the gut. A very simple way to do this, though, is to just eat more vegetables. I think it's very easy to get wrapped up in all of the articles that get sent all over social media about these certain effects that, that foods are going to have in your life. And the unfortunate part is that a lot of these articles don't pay enough attention to practical significance. They focus on, if you're lucky, scientific statistical significance. But the problem with statistical significance is, yes, it may have a demonstrated effect in a research study, but is it a large enough effect size to actually have practical meaning in your life, to change your life habits or to change your life around in order to incorporate it into your routine? So effect size is one of the key things that we like to have people focus on when they're making lifestyle adjustments. And effect size in, in statistics, it's called eta squared, but it really tells you how important this thing is for you in your life. And so 
you know, what we like to focus on is to make it very, very simple to just tell people, you know, eat more vegetables and you're going to eat these foods that have, you're going to end up having more resistant starch in your diet. And that, those resistant starches, those are the things that are going to have the greatest impact on your gut microbiome across a month of lifestyle change. So, and you know, they really don't cost you anything. You're not buying an expensive supplement that has dubious effects. Yeah, no, I definitely agree with you. The idea of like superfoods and everything that they can do for you. Like recently with this whole celery juice craze, I just recently spoke about it, of it miraculously healing all of these things. And I think just like the idea behind it is like you are focusing on one single food that you're bringing in, whereas you should be focusing on your lifestyle and diet as a whole. And like bringing in one thing is not going to make a big difference if you're still eating really bad the rest of the day type of idea. So I definitely agree with you on that. In terms of like gut bacteria, so getting into fasting a bit, what type of effect or impact does fasting have on the good and bad bacteria in your gut? Well, fasting is a, is a really exciting method to improve a person's lifestyle and health because it has such systemic effects on so many different systems. It's really a biohacker's dream because you can take it with you anywhere. It's free and it's got systemic health benefits. So an example is within the gut, if there's consistent inflammation in the gut from an unhealthy gut microbiome, you can reverse that inflammation with a period of three days fasting. Now, three days may sound like a lot, but there are ways to ramp up and get to that three-day mark where you start to see some really interesting systemic effects that really don't present much of a challenge for people. But fasting is so great because in the gut itself, it can impact the endothelial lining of the gut and it can help those cells turn over, create new cells and reduce dramatically the amount of inflammation that's present in the gut. So I've got a client that has had issues with Crohn's and he's actually had surgery because the Crohn's had progressed so far. And so this is something that he's been battling with for several years and has had to tiptoe around certain foods and otherwise it would have catastrophic inflammation consequences. And by integrating a three-day fast once a month, He's seen a complete recession of his Crohn's symptoms, and that's largely due to the fact that by starving the bad gut bacteria of the fuel that they need in order to produce their inflammatory enzymes and effects, you're able to give the gut lining a chance to repair itself by stopping the inflammatory cycle and then regenerating new gut endothelial lining cells and then you would, following the fast, you reseed the gut with healthy prebiotics that can create a healthier gut microbiome that's less inflammatory in nature. So what are some signs and symptoms that people might have that their gut is inflamed? Well, this is where the nature of how the systems interact gets kind of interesting because there's been research that's shown that there's a tight correlation between the inflammation in the gut and brain fog or your ability to function cognitively. So an enormous amount of your serotonin, the feel-good neurotransmitter in your body is actually generated in your gut and not in your brain. 
And so this sort of gut feeling that, that you have is tightly related to the amount of nerve endings and the amount of your nervous system that's actually in your gut. So a key indicator initially is, is usually you, you can feel that acutely. When you eat something bad, it can make you feel sleepy or give you brain fog and just having an unclear cognitive state. So with a little bit of self-awareness, you're able to feel that relatively immediately. And if you have too many days in a row of brain fog, you need to look at how much prebiotic material is actually making it to your gut that's healthy prebiotics. And that's a great place to start. Of course, other symptoms are going to be gastrointestinal distress and, and bloating and poor digestion. So all of those are key indicators. And another indicator of inflammation that people will often see, having a person's hormone system sort of held constant as a, as a variable is joint pain. So when there's a lot of inflammation in the gut, you're going to have inflammatory markers systemically throughout the body, and you'll start to feel pain in your small joints, in your hands, and then it'll progress, if not corrected for, into the larger joints of your body. That's really interesting. One of the big reasons I got into health in the first place was because I had leaky gut, which is obviously related to gut inflammation and dysbiosis. And a lot of the symptoms I had were everything that you just described and just being super moody and super not clear in my thinking and just like not on it. Like I just couldn't perform every day like I wanted to. But it's becoming self-aware of your symptoms that helps you realize what's going on. And a lot of people kind of have that disconnection with their body, right? Like you kind of feel like, oh, I'm just getting older and oh, I'm just tired and it's been a long week and these excuses start to come out. Whereas if you actually like have a healthy gut, you don't have to feel like that. And I'm sure like you see this over and over in your practice, it sounds like. Yeah, it's, it's unfortunately a very, very common set of symptoms because a lot of the unhealth that we experience is due to the, due to the diet. And mm. a lot of that, I mean, we get so fixated on whether it's keto or it's fasting or it's what type of fasting or is it vegan or this or that. All of those, you know, have their sort of cult following. But I think that it really, what it boils down to is what is the proportion of prebiotic food, of plant foods that you're getting into your gut relative to the other stuff. It's pretty simple. You know, eat more vegetables and make that a larger proportion of the total calories that you're consuming. If you're on any one of those diets and you're not, when you're eating, eating a lot of vegetables, you're doing it wrong. Mm -hmm. So in terms of that, what is your opinion on the carnivore craze going on then? Well, if there were any evidence in, if there were any peer-reviewed research evidence, I could render an opinion, but unfortunately there isn't. And so what we have here is basically a meme that's turned into a lot of people changing their lifestyle. I think it's unfortunate because what you're doing is you're borrowing from your future. If you may have some alleviation of symptoms, the body is a very complex set of systems. And if you have any any alleviation of your symptoms in the short term, you're trading that for long-term health. And if, you, if you're not reading and keeping up on the peer-reviewed research literature, you can at least defer to common sense that if you're not integrating vegetables into your diet, you're going to pay the price later on. Unfortunately for these people and for a lot of the gurus that are pushing this diet is that they're not going to know and they're not going to be held accountable for the recommendations they've been making when their patients are sick 15, 20 years from now. Or potentially sooner. But 
I think it's really unfortunate because if you want to get really rich as a guru really fast, you can tell people good things about their bad habits. You know, and I, I get very concerned when the recommendation is to eat more processed meats, which are a known carcinogen in the same category as cigarettes. And the research evidence is crystal clear about this. And bacon is a processed meat. So telling people to eat more bacon or to, you know, just eat more meat in general, it's just, it's not a sound recommendation. And, you know, I'm happy to, to talk to anybody about that that wants to discuss it, but there's an enormous amount of research that I can refer people to that they'd be well served to review themselves instead of, you know, consuming the product of other people's thinking to educate themselves personally on that. But I think that we've got to really take a step back and take a, take a hard look at, you know, what the research evidence is saying and how that's translating into epidemiological effects, you know, for our population. The populations that eat the most meat are the sickest. That's not up for debate. It's just a fact. It's an epidemiological fact that's agreed on across the scientific community, across the globe. There's no conspiracy. The only thing that's going on is there's some powerful interests that are pushing the consumption of meat because it's a, it's a very big industry and it's got very big lobbyists around it. And so I think we've got to take a step back and look at you know, what are the actual health effects across a population of consuming that amount of animal products. It's, it's just not a sound recommendation in my opinion. Yeah, I agree with you. I've been pretty surprised actually to see how much it's grown, I think in the last like six months to a year online. Because I think there was keto and then there was dirty keto, which is like all the bacon and like the processed fat that people were eating. And now it's just kind of turned into this carnivore way but there are people who do carnivore with like only grass fed and grass finished meat and like ethically raised meat and all of these things. But I still worry exactly like you said, like the implications of that long term, like what is that doing to your gut? What is that doing like for your aging? What is that doing to your telomeres? Like all of these different things. So I guess we'll just have to wait and see kind of what the research says. Yeah, I mean, there's an enormous amount of research that's, that's in that vein, like AGEs, they, mm-hmm. they are advanced glycation end products that are a result from cooking meat. So the more AGEs you have, the more cancer you have, and the faster you age, and the faster it unravels your telomeres. That's just one example. I mean, you could have these people do, they could have their gut microbiome tested, and they could see the amount of unhealthy gut bacteria that's piling up and how those particular strains of gut bacteria correlate to long-term disease. These are things that are concrete and irrefutable. And so I really hope that people take a step back and just look at the numbers. I think if people do that, they take a step back and they look at the numbers, they'll use common sense. They care about themselves. They care about their, their family. They want to be around for them. They'll make a good decision. But right now we've got a situation where there's a lot of sort of anti-intellectualism and people are consuming you know, pseudoscience like in, in the form of memes and, and that's going to have, you know, negative health outcomes. But, you know, people who listen to podcasts like these and can get deeper into the science and educate themselves, I think, you know, they're likely to have better health outcomes in the long term. Yeah, I agree with you. I think if you're going to choose a diet, which I don't necessarily agree with that in general, I think you need to do your research and not just hop on the bandwagon of what everyone else is doing. But in terms of going back to gut health, so we know that overconsumption of meat can be harmful on gut bacteria. What other types of food and ingredients should we avoid in order to have a healthy gut as well? 
I would limit the consumption of animal products. It doesn't mean that you have to be a vegan, but trying to, and I, I like to really say for clients that it's more important to focus on what you should be eating than what you should not be eating. Because when you tell yourself psychologically that something's off limits, you only want it more. And so I think that it's, it's more important to focus on, okay, what can I integrate into my diet and let that supplant the other less healthy foods? It's, there's only so much space in your stomach. And if you're focusing on getting in as many, you know, cruciferous vegetables and dark leafy greens and legumes, you're going to have a better gut microbiome. And if you've got chicken breasts and other lean meats and things that are in there, you know, you've got a buffer against those effects. So I think that's really the important part. But generally speaking, it's limiting the amount of animal products in the diet. That's, you know, meats, cheeses, milks, you know, any kinds of broths, that kind of stuff. You know, you're going to have, it's all derivative from an industrial farm system that is problematic at best. And so when you can integrate more plant material into the diet, it's going to replace some of those foods just naturally in quantity, and you're going to start seeing better health effects over the long term. So are you mostly plant-based then or vegetarian or how do you eat? I try to just get in as many plant foods as, as I possibly can, fruits and vegetables and legumes. An interesting part about you know structuring a diet is it's got to be sustainable long-term and it's got to fit with your lifestyle. So there was a period of time, about two years, where I was fully vegan and about a year of that I was fruitarian, which is doesn't mean you only eat fruits. It just means that you're eating fruits and vegetables. Most of your diet is vegetables, but the largest proportion of your calories comes from fruit by virtue of the fact that they are more calorie dense than vegetables. And honestly, I was, I never felt healthier and my brain function had never been better. I was filing patents during that time and really felt on top of my game. The challenge was that, you know, with business travel and meeting with clients and just a lot of, you know, activity on the business side, it became difficult to sustain that. And then, you know, just being in social circles where it just became difficult or introduced a lot of friction to, to stay on that. I started in integrating other, other types of foods judiciously to sort of make the diet more compatible with the lifestyle. I don't think that's necessarily the best that I could possibly achieve for health outcomes, but it was the best I could achieve to integrate better food choices into a lifestyle that I could sustain for a lifetime. So I, you know, I, I recommend just taking a step back and, and looking at the, the research and looking at your lifestyle and figuring out you know, what is going to be most sustainable for the lifestyle that you want to lead. Because ultimately, it's not a sprint. You know, no keto diet is going to sprint you into optimal health. The optimal health is built cell by cell over an entire lifetime. I love that. Yeah, so I've been paleo and I've been keto and I've done a few different things. Both of those I found were to meat focused, like you said. So now I kind of go in and out of like vegetarianism almost like so... I probably have animal products every other day and then the other days are plant-based, like fully plant-based. And it's just kind of like a cycle. So I would really like to see like diet culture in general go towards more of holistic thinking compared to I eat this one way, this is the diet I eat, this is the label. Because I think that there's so much more benefits, like you said, of 
eating in and out of vegetarianism and fasting and going into ketosis and doing these different things rather than just like one way of eating your whole life and this is the answer to everything, like which is what so many diets promote. So yeah, but I think we are eventually moving towards that. I think you, you raise a great point too about this sort of flexitarianism that you don't have to commit to being a vegan for the rest of your life, but you could certainly eat some vegan days out of your week. And I think that's an excellent way because you give the gut and the system a chance to blunt the inflammatory response and cease that inflammatory cycle as you go through the week. Because every time that you eat animal products, there's an inflammatory response in the body that's not present when you're eating a vegan or a plant-based meal. So, I mean, it's just something that, that we realistically need to be aware of. And the other thing too is to be careful about attaching things like ketosis to meat. Ketosis has nothing to do with meat. Mm. It has nothing to do with fat. It has to do with an absence of glycogen that you're consuming that allows the body to switch into a mode where it starts metabolizing First, the glycogen that's in the liver, and once that's depleted, it starts breaking down the fat in the body and creates ketones, which is the state of ketosis. And then that state happens to be related to upregulation of autophagy, which is the cells breaking themselves down, using them as energy. And these cells happen to be ones that are senescent cells or they're, they're cells that aren't replicating properly. And so you're breaking those down and then replenishing them from stem cells with healthy new cells. And this effect is particularly pronounced in the immune system. In the work of Dr. Walter Mongo, you can Google his work, some fantastic stuff about the fasting mimicking diet and how, the, how those things can be achieved. But it has nothing to do with what you're eating. Ketosis has to do with what you're not eating. Mm. You know? And it's not, so it's not, you don't have to eat meat and you don't have to have a keto diet, quote unquote, which is you know, meats and fats in order to be able to achieve a state of ketosis. In fact, the ideal state of ketosis is a fasted state where a person will fast for two to three days and get deep into that state of ketosis where you're producing a lot of ketones like beta-hydroxybutyrate and you start feeling really good, you start feeling really focused and you give your body a chance to break the inflammatory cycle and to regenerate new cells all over in the body. So... If you do a daily fast, so say you do the 16 to 8 hour daily fast, can you get similar benefits compared to doing the three-day fast? The daily fast, there are some benefits that are shared with the three-day fast. So a 16-8 fast, you're going to break the inflammatory cycle and you're going to give the body a chance to burn off some of the glycogen that's stored in the liver so that by the time you are eating new sources of carbohydrate you're going to replenish the glycogen stores in the liver as opposed to overwhelm the glycogen stores in the liver and convert those to fats, body fat, essentially. So, you know, the 16-8 is, is a good habit to be in because it allows your body to use up the glycogen that's stored in the liver. However, you're not going to achieve a deep state of autophagy by only fasting for 16 hours, which is why I recommend that once a month, a person does a three-day fast. And that three-day fast, ideally, you want to work your way up to a five-day fast, maybe once every three months. But a three-day fast will get you into a state where you've burned off all of the glycogen in the liver, and you've reached a deep state of autophagy where you're breaking down senescent cells or cells that aren't replicating properly. 
and replenishing them, particularly in places where the cell turnover is, is more quick, like the soft tissue of the body, the lining of the, the cells in the gut, the lining in the cells of the arterial walls, and so on. And so, you know, I'd recommend that. And I know that a three-day fast sounds kind of extreme to somebody who's never fasted before or has never skipped breakfast before. But there are very easy methods to, to work your way from, you know, one fasting protocol to a more sustained or extended fasting protocol. For instance, if you start with, if you've never done fasting before, then what I recommend is push your breakfast till 10 a.m. and then eat a small breakfast and then resume your normal eating at lunch. And then after you've done that for a week, then you can skip breakfast altogether and wait until lunch, then eat a normal lunch and a normal dinner. And then after that, you can push all the way to OMAD or one meal a day. So in the third week, you can do an OMAD structure where you're eating one big healthy meal, lots of good plant material in the meal, and you, you do that for a week. And then at that point, you can work your way. That's sometimes also called 24-hour fasting. It's where you've, you've from dinner to dinner is 24 hours. And then from there, you can work your way into 36-hour fasts. And so you can sort of slowly work your way up to this. And when you do that, it's easy to adjust. And the reason why is because your body doesn't necessarily need, you know, three meals and three snacks a day like most people are eating. Your body thinks it does because it's used to being fed at those times. Just like as if you were raising a dog. If you feed the dog three times a day, it's going to be starving at the meal time, if you don't feed it right at noon and it's expecting the meal at noon, if you don't feed it then, it's going to be starving for that 10-minute gap, right? But the reason why isn't because the dog inherently needs that food at noon. It's not pre-programmed to need that food at noon, nor are you. You've programmed the body's systems, including ghrelin, to alert you that it's time to eat at that time. And so by slowly shifting those feeding times, you're able to adjust how much ghrelin response and the ghrelin response reduces with each passing day that you've adjusted the eating schedule. When you do that and you adjust the ghrelin, you ramp your sort of pattern of eating into a healthier pattern, which is allowing you to burn off the glycogen that you stored in your liver. I mean, most people in the United States do not have a shortfall of body fat, right? And there's a reason for that. It's because we're not tapping into those body fat stores as a source of fuel. And we could be doing that if we allow our body to deplete its glycogen stores. And you do that by not necessarily starting by shifting what you're eating or the carb ratios. It's by shifting when you're eating and giving your body a chance to burn those stores off before you replenish again. Yeah, I agree with you. I know there's been quite a bit of discussion of the difference between males and females fasting and the implications it has for the female cycle and the female hormones. So can you speak to that? And do you think that it has any negative impacts on female hormones if you are doing just like the daily 16 to 8 hour fast? So this is a great question. There has been some research lately looking at the serum level of hormones in fasted states. What I will say is that in shorter fasts, meaning, you know, five-day fasts, three-day fasts, not super extended fasts, like 10-plus-day fasts, that has a limited effect on sex hormones. It does affect sort of signaling hormones like insulin, and it, and it does affect signaling hormones like ghrelin that are related to the hunger cycle. But those tend to be positive effects. 
there's a low correlation, meaning there's not much of an effect on sex hormones. Now, that is if a person is consuming enough calories before and after the fast or during the fast if they're doing a 16-8. So what sometimes women will do is they're already on a low-calorie diet. They want to take that up to the next level, and then they start doing a 16-8 fast. And by doing that, they're eating even fewer calories now on a daily basis. And then that sustained over time will have a negative impact on sex hormones like estrogen. So you'll see that with professional gymnasts, for instance, they get on these severe calorie restricted diets over very long periods of time, and then their cycle stops. And you'll see this in competitive female bodybuilders that are natural, so they're not taking exogenous hormones, which would explain sort of a maladapted cycle activity. When you have people that are restricting their calories for a very long period of time, that's going to interfere with the cycle. It's going to interfere with the estrogen. So if there's issues with the cycle, I'd take a step back and look at how far off, if you do one of those calorie calculators and you look at you know, how many calories you're consuming relative to your body weight, you've got to be realistic about that. This isn't a method to reduce calories. It's a method to adjust sort of insulin resistance and the amount of glycogen that you're allowing your body to deplete before you're repleting it with new sources of carbohydrate. It should ideally for a person who is having issues with their cycle, it should not be used as a method to reduce calories. A lot of times a person who's having issues with their cycle and they've been dieting for several years, which unfortunately is, is not all that uncommon with clients that I see, those people need to be reverse dieted back to a healthy calorie level to get their metabolism back up into a healthy state, you know, where they're feeling warm and they're feeling energetic and it's easy for them to break a sweat. You know, that's a sign of a healthy metabolism. And then you can start playing with the sort of meal timing and, and sort of fasting protocols. But in a lot of cases, you know, with people who've got either, you know, body image issues or they've sort of leaning into orthorexia, it's very common to see those people on extremely low calorie diets. A lot of like the vegan influencers. I love veganism. I love the health implications that it has. But when you combine that with being an influencer on social media, a lot of those influencers have admitted over the last couple of years of how they were at such incredibly low calorie levels that their cycle stopped. So these are, I would say look at the calorie level first if you're having issues and then start exploring fasting protocols once that's been corrected and the metabolism has been brought back to normal. That's interesting because that's one of the things that people say about keto as well is that as a female, if you go keto, it can quote unquote mess up your hormones. But from what it sounds like, it's actually just eating too few calories, not necessarily like the fat to carb to protein ratio of keto itself that is actually doing the damage. Well, now this is an interesting point. If we're talking about keto specifically, the issue that you're going to see if you are eating a lot of your calories from animal products like meats and fats that are derived from meats is if you feed an animal hormones, and even with grass-fed animals, you're going to find excessive amounts of hormones in these foods. Or if you're eating cheese or a lot of milk, those are, there's sex hormones in those naturally because it's, it's literally a pregnant cow, which has got sex hormones coursing through its body that then are concentrated down into you know, these fats like cheeses and other things that you're then consuming. So when you're eating a lot of animal products, you're eating biocompatible sex hormones at a super physiological level. 
And those are absorbed by your system and those do disrupt the endocrine system. So it would be fantastical thinking to imagine that, you know, you could consume all of these products with all of these biocompatible sex hormones in them and have it not affect your hormonal system whatsoever. So when we're talking about keto and we're talking about radically ratcheting up the amount of sex hormones you're consuming through your food, of course, you're likely to see, you know, sex hormone effects on the body. Interesting. A good rule of thumb that I have that helps me is that whenever I go out for food, no matter what type of cuisine it is, like Indian or even like a really nice restaurant, I always, always eat vegetarian now. And just because of that reason, like you don't know where that meat came from or those eggs, you don't know what's in it. So it reduces the meat and animal product load. And so I try and get like other people to do that too now. And, and usually actually when you go out for food, if you get a vegetarian dish, it's actually pretty good. So that's a good way to like start reducing the consumption of animal products that most people are doing. Because most people eat so much animal products, so much animal protein, because it's everywhere, right? Like it's in every fast food restaurant. It's in even like the healthy fast food places that you go to. It's like primarily focused on animal consumption and healthy animal protein. So it's interesting that you, you talk about that. Yeah. And there was a study about three years ago that did DNA testing on the animal products in restaurants. And so when you go to a restaurant and they're telling you that it's grass fed this or that or whatever, or it's this type of meat or it's Kobe beef or it's tilapia or whatever it is, they did DNA tests on all ranges of restaurants, super high end ones, all the way to fast food ones. And they found that the amount of food that was imitated or they were saying was one type of food actually was DNA tested as something else. So if they're going to tell you that the meat itself is one thing and it's not even that, imagine what's happening with all the other additives and the, the, the way it's being sourced and all those other things. I mean, these restaurants, they're a business. Mm -hmm. They're not a charity. They're a business to make a profit. When you have a profit motive, you're going to have a lot of gray area that's exploited and where the consumer pays the price. Now, maybe the food is delicious and you want to keep coming back for more, but you know, maybe it's not exactly what they're saying it is. And so a good way to buffer that impact is exactly what you're doing, which is, you know, eat vegetarian at these restaurants when you go out. It's, it's not that hard to do. And a lot of times you're going to discover foods that you totally love that you would have probably never otherwise tried. And, you know, I mean, the reality is, you know, the average person's eating chicken three or four times a week. But they're the same people that say, oh, I could never go vegan because the range of foods that I would eat are so limited. I mean, that is beyond ridiculous. Your diet broadens out beautifully when you tell yourself, I'm going to go vegan. It, it allows you to explore all these different types of mushrooms and all these different types of vegetables and all these different types of dishes and spices. And, you know, there are cultures all over the world that, you know, their primary diet is, is either vegan or vegetarian. And they've, they've cultivated these recipes for thousands of years. And they're damn good, not to mention that they're loaded with prebiotics that are going to make you feel good as well. Exactly. That's exactly it. So you mentioned briefly orthorexia. A lot of people have no idea what that is. They've never heard of it. So can you dive into that and kind of just give some examples and also what you see in your practice with that? Well, you know, in plain language, it's basically that it's people who tend to fixate on eating a healthy diet or living a healthy lifestyle so much so that it becomes unhealthy. And so it's at the cost of other 
areas of their life. Maybe it's interfering with their social life or it's interfering with their long-term physical health. It's getting fixated on these these sort of microscopic variables at the cost of other areas of their life. So lately there's been a lot, I mean, I'd say in the last five years, there's been a lot more content that's been going out over Instagram and YouTube about health practices and different diets. And I think this is creating an obsessive culture around, you know, diet and exercise and health. And it's unfortunately not accompanied by a lot of peer-reviewed research. It's still a lot of meme culture where ideas are spreading that aren't necessarily backed by scientific evidence. But even if it were, even if the focus of these people were on, you know, highly validated research studies about health and they were architecting their lifestyles around that information, it's still possible to be orthorexic where you become so fixated on it that, for instance, there's people who I think it's good to track your food consumption, right? I think it's good to know what your macros are and to know what your micronutrients are and make sure that you're getting the right nutrition from the food that you're eating. But to obsessively track it or to stress out about it or to not be able to eat a meal unless you've got your phone and your MyFitnessPal up and being able to log it, that can be a problem. And there was a time when I was living in Germany where I was doing living a more like a bodybuilding style of, of lifestyle where I was tracking everything I was eating, I was weighing it, and I was weighing myself every day and you know constantly tracking body fat levels and it provided my life with some structure, which was nice and it was a it was a certain level of control that I had over a lot of things that were going on in my life and so I totally understand that tendency but once I started noticing that, you know, I'd be sitting at a meal that my girlfriend prepared and I would be peppering her with questions about what was in it and how much butter and, and all this stuff so I could sit there and I could track it for 20 minutes and log everything into my app, I started realizing that I got to dial this back a little bit. This is obnoxious at best and caustic, you know, at worst. And, and so, you know, I started looking at, you know, how do I maybe do more of a if-it-fits-your-macro style approach and starting to eyeball things. And what I noticed as I relinquished some of that control and focus that I still stayed in shape and I still was hitting my health milestones that, that were my goals, but it wasn't such a, an enormous part of my day. It wasn't taking up so much of my mind. And when I freed up those mental resources, you know, my life started blossoming again and I started being able to you know, accomplish more things and structure my career in a certain way and come up with new ideas. And so I think that's kind of the thing is to really try to find a balance where you've got enough focus on your health that you're achieving the, the health outcomes that you want to achieve, but you're also balanced enough to where you can live the kind of life that you want to live, the life that you envision for yourself that's not obsessing over, you know, every macro and micronutrient. It's easier said than done, I think. So especially in the biohacking community, which looks at all these different parts of your life and tries to control them and make it like healthy and, and really just live this optimally healthy life every single day, it's very easy to get caught up in orthorexia and that type of thing. So walking the line between like biohacking, but not over biohacking and not getting too stressed out about things and all of that is actually really difficult. And it seems like the deeper you go into biohacking and the deeper you go into how you're eating, the harder it is to kind of have that balance. Like, how do you justify drinking a glass of wine 
when you know it's going to have this effect on your body, you know, it's got these calories, blah, blah, blah. Right. So, and I don't necessarily even know the answer to that. Like, I don't know how to necessarily justify those types of things because once you understand your body systems and, you know, how your cells work on such a like minute level, it's kind of difficult to know and decide that it's okay to do those certain things that might not be the best for you. I don't know. Does that make sense? Yeah, Brittany, I mean, this is a challenge that a lot of people are having right now as they're starting to learn and educate themselves more on the bodily systems. And I think that, you know, it really boils down to kind of two things. And this isn't necessarily the answer, but this is something that tends to work with our clients. And one is, if you're going to integrate these pieces of knowledge into your life, you want to build a lifestyle that leverages them in a sustainable way. So if you're looking at implementing a new thing in your life, you've got to ask yourself at the outset, is this sustainable? Is this something I could see myself doing when I'm 95 years old? If you can't envision yourself doing it for the next you know, 50, 60 years, then it's not sustainable. And you might want to figure out the light version of whatever that thing is that you're trying to implement. So for instance, you mentioned wine. You know, For the cardiovascular system, it's shown that it has benefits for the system. For the brain, the research shows there's no healthy amount of alcohol that you can consume. But if you're going to ask yourself, okay, do I tell myself wine is off limits for the rest of my life, which then, of course, makes me want it more, or do I say, what's more sustainable? Well, maybe more sustainable is, you know, on Thursday and Friday nights, I have wine, but, you know, the other nights during the week, I don't need to be drinking wine every single night, right? So it's looking at, like, ways that you can incorporate these principles into your life in a sustainable structure that brings some realism and some practicality. To the space. And I think that's something that's kind of missing from biohacking right now is mm. people are learning enough to be dangerous to themselves. And, you know, you, you put all this focus on one area and it's at the cost of another area or there's a rebound effect. So that's, that's kind of the first piece is, is asking yourself at the outset for any new thing you want to implement, can I do this for the next 50 years? Because that's the goal, right? You have to be building your health every single day. If you're not, each day, you know, you're either getting closer to your goal or you're getting further away. And everything that you implement, you got to ask yourself, is this getting me closer to my goal or is it getting me further away from my goal? So the sort of macro perspective on that is in order to get you closer to your goal consistently, it's got to be sustainable. Okay. The second thing is habit stacking, is building habits because you only have so much cognitive capacity to allocate towards things that are important to you in your life, that improve your performance in your life, improve the relationships in your life, improve your career, and so on. So you don't want to be tying up all of those cognitive resources on figuring out if you should be sleeping seven hours a night, seven and a half hours a night, eight hours a night. You know, there's a sort of a practicality you've got to integrate into this, which is if you figure out something that works for you, build a habit around it. Allow yourself to integrate that habit into your life and then forget about it. But focusing on 10 or 15 different biohacking variables every day, that's not a productive use of your cognitive capacity when there's so much more you need to add and deliver to the world, that the world is relying upon you to deliver, right? So it's not just about you and about how to hack all of your internal systems. And so you want to ideally create a structure where you can do habit stacking. We have a program that's called the Neuromethod 360 program, or it's, it's all built around habit stacking. And there's 12 weeks of all the sort of key things that you can do for your body and your brain. And we focus on these 
these, these habits and how you can quickly and efficiently create a habit using a challenge to yourself. And then once that habit is built, you forget about it. And then you build a new habit on top of it and you attach that habit. And then over the course of time, you're able to sort of integrate and build these habits into your life that don't require cognitive load or to rob your sort of mental processing power for the other things that you're needing to be doing. I love that. That's so smart. And that's such a great way to find a healthy, sustainable balance. And I I love this idea, like you said, of is this sustainable in 50 years? Like when I'm older, will I still be able to do this? And will I want to do it? And I've never really heard that and I've never thought of it like that. So that is very, very helpful. So I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It was so good to chat. I felt like I learned so much from you and I know everyone listening definitely learned a lot from you as well. Where can people find you after this? How can they connect and tell us where you are? Yeah, so people can find us at halcyon.bio. It's www.halcyon.bio and you can send us an email there. And then for people interested in in our 12-week program that focuses on habit stacking and integrating some of these key biohacking principles into your life over the course of 12 weeks, you can email me at marcus at halcyon.bio. And of course, so on a limited basis, I do one-on-one consultations and you can reach me via the the same method, marcus at halcyon.bio. Awesome. Great. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure, Brittany. We'll talk to you soon. Thanks so much for tuning in. I really appreciate having every single one of you listen and download and share and all sorts of things. It goes a long way. And I'm happy to help provide education and information that furthers your own information so that you can be healthier and have the people around you, your loved ones, be healthier as well. So yeah, thanks for listening. Tune in next week for another episode. And I hope you have a good day. Thanks.